Welcome to Graduating Grief, a podcast designed to help you step back into living your life with joy after loss. If you're ready to move from surviving to thriving, you've come to the right place. Here's your host and inspirationista, Sherry Dunleavy. So many of us have our own grief journey and what the purpose of graduating grief is, is to be able to journey together, but showcase people who have made that journey into something worthwhile, significant, and impactful. And today I am talking with Marcella Williams, who has done just that. She has traveled a grief journey over and over in so many different ways. And how she started out in life is not how she ended up today. And her grief journey has really had a lot to do with it. So Marcella, thank you very much for joining us today on Graduating Grief. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So I'm just going to put it out there. You are a licensed funeral director now. <laughs> and, um, and that is all because of your grief journey. So would we, could we go back and start at the beginning so we can look at your transformation and your journey? Sure. Um, I always wonder how far back I should go. Um, uh, I've been in death care now for, for six years. So my first career was in uh, youth and family violence and uh, working in the criminal justice system and fostering. And so I did a lot of um, kind of helping profession things before. Um, but there were two very significant losses that kind of brought me here. Um, and the first of those was uh, losing my dad uh, when I was 22. Um, it was a sudden death due to a, a heart attack. Um, and it was just a few weeks before Christmas. Mm. Um, so that was very difficult. Um, you know, we talked about it before. You talk about it in your book, this idea of uh, people thinking that a death is contagious. And so to be 22 and lose your dad, suddenly your friends, they don't know what to say. You're the first one to lose a parent. And they're just kind of weird about the whole, um, you know, being close to you. It's, it's a very, it was a very isolating experience. Um, and we didn't have... Um, and I hate to say this, we didn't have the greatest experience with the funeral home that we chose. Um, and so if you had told me back then that I'd be doing this now, it would surprise me. Um, but what really changed things for me, I think was, um, so my adopted mother in 2011 was diagnosed with glioblastoma multiform. Um, so she had an inoperable brain cancer. And um, they told us in May of that year that they may give, she may have six months. Um, and so we did hospice care with her. My sisters were, you know, we were taking care of her. Um, and she had been a part-time tax preparer. And I think it's a really interesting thing that she held on for every grandchild's birthday, every major holiday. Um, and she actually made it all the way from May, 2011 to April 15th, 2012. Oh. Um, <laughs> so the fact that she passed on tax day, I just think is, uh, somewhere in, in her mind <laughs> to that deadline. Um, so at that time I hadn't been feeling really great. I knew something was going on with me, but the doctors really didn't know what it was. Um, and it just happened that I had a, a strange kind of, um, you know, like a mole that I wanted to get removed. It was starting to change color and hurt. Nobody was really alarmed by it or anything. Um, but five months after my mother passed, they sent that little mole off to biopsy. And, um, it was determined that I had something called dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans. Um, which is a very rare cancer. Um, it's not, you know, deadly. It's not uh, particularly malignant. It's a very slow growing, you know, easy to manage thing when it's caught. Um, but what hit me was that here I was five months after the passing of my mother, we had spent 
um, you know, give or take 11 months actively watching her die. Um, and here I was faced with cancer and um, the person I had been married to for 11 years didn't even know what I would want if this cancer, if I passed. Um, and so it was kind of like, how do we not have these conversations about these, this one thing we all have to do? You know, I already had this experience of we don't do grief, right? We don't support one another the way we should. And then this idea of even in the face of death, we don't talk about dying and what we want and how, what, what control we want to have over that situation. Um, so when my, when my ex-husband was like, well, I don't know, I mean, I guess I'd lay you out and like put you in your wedding dress and I'd, and I, it was horrific to think that that's what he thought that I wanted. Um, you know, but that's, that's on me. That's on our culture. We don't talk about those things. And so um, it was sort of at that point that I, I really confronted kind of with my own mortality, confronted with my own experience. As I said, how do I go about um, kind of inserting myself into the community in a way where we can start to normalize these discussions and we can start to better support one another uh, in the journey of grief and in uh, our decisions at the end, you know, taking control of those things. Um, so um, I actually spent about a year, I didn't tell anyone, I had one close friend, but I spent about a year kind of researching what it would take to become a funeral director because it's pretty intensive here in Virginia. Um, and I did a lot of reading, I did a lot of praying, I did a lot of journaling. Um, and then I asked, you know, my husband at the time, I said, hey, I wanna go back to school for a third degree. Um, and I thought he was going to fall out, <laughs> but when I explained it to him, he really was like, this is, I think this is what you're meant to do. Um, and, you know, now, like I said, six years into it, it definitely feels like what I was being called to do. And I'm finally where I'm supposed to be. So, so are you, is your, how is your health now? So I don't have the type of sarcoma I have is not a um, like in remission, the way that people typically think of cancer. Um, so what I am is basically no evidence of disease. Mm -hmm. So I had several surgeries. I've had some other sort of um, near misses. So uh, I have been no evidence of disease consistently since 2015. Um, so that's a, that's a big blessing. That's exciting. <laughs> Never really exhale. Cause it seems like you must always be on high alert. Well, it, it's tough. You know, you know, there was a time where I was seeing a medical oncologist twice a year and a surgical oncologist twice a year. And then one year they both decided I could just go to annual visits and they were like, you've graduated. And it was like Yay! a weird milestone, but it was still like, oh, okay. So, you know, now instead of like four, you know, uh, appointments, we have two, um, and, and that's the thing. I mean, cancer's never really done with you. You, you can go into remission, you can go into no evidence, um, but that underlying anxiety is always kind of there. Um, but I think for me, it's a catalyst for me to make the most out of my time here. Um, I'm not gonna do the Tour de France. I'm not gonna climb a mountain. I told my good friend when I got diagnosed, I said, I'm gonna sit in pajamas, I'm gonna cry a lot. <laughs> um, I'm not gonna be a hero about this. Um, but just for me personally, it does um, kind of serve as a catalyst for making sure I'm, I'm doing the most with the, the life I've been given. So. That's a beautiful thing because <laughs> I think sometimes um, grief can paralyze you mm -hmm. and make you want to lie in the pajamas, in the fetal position and never get back up, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. It has its time uh, and purpose being there right but there's always something bigger and and your cancer is is your greatest teacher right now right yeah 
it, I mean, it definitely informs a lot of uh, what I do. It's frustrating sometimes, you know, having lost a parent to cancer, um, you know, it's frustrating sometimes that hero label you get or like the, oh, you're so brave, you beat it. And I'm like, I didn't fight any harder than my mother did. I just got lucky. Um, and so what do I do now? Well, you know, yes. the, the luck or the blessing of that, like, what do I do with that now? Um, instead of kind of resting and being like, well, I'm fine. Um, what can I do with, with the, the days that I've gotten now? Um, and so that's, it's sometimes it's uncomfortable for me to feel like a survivor because you do have that guilt that's associated with your grief of losing someone and why me and not her. And, you know, there's a lot of that, that I wrestled with a lot, um, in my own diagnosis, but, um, now I just kind of have to use that as a, a propellant of sorts. So uh, let's talk. Can we talk about that for a minute? Yes, because absolutely. one of the things I think that prevents a lot of people from moving forward in their life, enjoying, smiling, and loving their life again is that guilt. Mm -hmm. So here we have you with your mother dying from cancer, you um, being able to, you know, survive, change courses and choose to live a life of thrive. What did you do to get through that guilt? You said it took a lot of processing. It took a lot of thought. What was that thought process like? Can you remember? And is there anything you can share? I mean, I can remember, and, and this was like the devastating thing. I can remember when my, uh, my mother was first diagnosed. I'm going to cry a little bit, maybe. Um, but I can remember thinking like she has eight grandchildren. She's not even 60 yet. You know, there's so much more like she was a teacher. She was a tax preparer, the community. Everybody called her Bubby. Everybody knew her. And there was that moment when literally I, I thought, why isn't it me? Like as terrible as that is, I have a husband, I have a child, but like I'm, I'm not her, like, and it was just a really heartbreaking kind of thing to wrestle with. Um, and so when you get to the, the end of her journey and then it's like, surprise, you do have a cancer, but it's a safe one. Um, it was just, it felt, um, I don't know how to, you know, you just feel like the, the universe or the greater power is kind of messing with you a little bit. You're like, mm -hmm. um, and I think for me, I, I had to kind of be like, okay, well, this is it now. Like, this is, this is your future. This is your life. This is, um, you know, and you can either continue to battle the, what could have been, or you can embrace the, what I have now. And how would my mother want me to continue? Um, I don't think that it would be, I, I know it's not, it, it's not her to feel guilty and feel sad and, and kind of wallow in that. Um, and I think that the, that I, I best kind of serve her legacy by, uh, serving other people. I mean, that was the the big thing. I, you know, I got lucky. Now what do I do? Um, and it's not a not a big thing, but it's this this little thing that I feel like I I get to do every day with my with my time. So um, I don't I really know. Like I I don't just something clicked in my head that this isn't what she would want for me. Like she wouldn't want me to be trapped in this place and to feel guilty. Um, so. So, yeah, I think that you know, was you have to think back to your mother when you were born and watching you grow, you know, as mothers, you know, we are excited for our children to live their biggest, best life. Right. Mm -hmm. Regardless, that's what our dream is. Mm -hmm. So you would not be honoring that dream of her. Should you just decide to lay down and cry and never yeah. get back up again. Right. 
And I think one of the, the weirdest things, um, so so when I went back to school, you know, you go back to school for two years, um, where I live, I have to drive a bridge and a tunnel to get to the college I was going to. And it didn't hit me until, you know, you get toward the end of it and you're graduating and everybody who's gone to college remembers wanting to like call your parents and graduation, it's a big deal. Um, and it was sad. And then I thought about how for two years without even really, it was not something I did consciously. But subconsciously, the route that I took from classes back home took me past both the house where my father had and I had lived during high school and my mother's last condo. And it was just like this really weird thing where I was just like, they've been with me this whole time. Like whether I've acknowledged that or however that happened, like they have never been far from me. Um, and so I feel like um, you know, even though like with my dad passing, suddenly not getting to say the things I maybe wanted to have said, I feel like he'd be pretty proud uh, to see me kind of thriving now. Um, and he was big in the community. He was a business owner. He'd walk into a restaurant and the chef would come out and be like, what do you want to eat? Like he just knew people that same way. Um, and big, so, big personality, huh? He was a big personality. <laughs> Um, and I can't say that I'm that big a personality, but I can say that it does feel good when I'm out in the community and people, um, you know, you recognize people, whether that's, you know, your mayor, the chief of police, you know, or a nurse, somebody um, that you can just reach out and have that connection with. And so um, there is an element of that that also, I think, kind of honors my dad's spirit, which is pretty, pretty fantastic. That's, that's beautiful. So I want to move forward now to what you're doing as a funeral director, because you had mentioned when your father had died that the funeral experience was not uh, the greatest. So what is it in you that m wants to make a difference? And what is that difference? So here's the here's the thing. So my sister, my younger sister is a wedding planner. And, you know, we talk about how, like, if she's sitting down with a family and she, you know, sits down in front of them and she says, you're only going to do this once, wink, wink, you know, here's all the bells and whistles you can have in your, in your wedding. And people get very excited and they, are, they love to see it all. And they never feel like anybody's um, pressuring them or selling to them or anything like that. Um, when you come into it as a funeral director, this really is our one chance to get it right for someone's person. And so I think there are two things that are really important um, when it comes to meeting someone in their grief. And the first thing is, is to find out who their person is, um, because I don't feel like, you know, the funeral director I dealt with was oh, what type of car did your father drive? Because that'll tell us what type of casket you should choose. Um, and I, it was just the, the wildest thing to me. Um, and so when we're meeting with families at need, you know, when they've suffered a loss, it's really important to kind of listen to them tell you about who their person was, because that'll tell you how they want to memorialize and remember them. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's a, that's a hugely important thing. And the second thing I think that's really important for us as funeral directors is to continue to be present for our families, um, which is something, um, you know, I know you, you mentioned the book and I know I, I just, I feel like it's such an important thing to continue to hold space for families um, because it's not like, you know, we have a funeral service, they go home and it's over. Um, because it's not over for them. So we want to continue to be those resources when, um, you know, they need assistance with filing certain benefits or they need a support group because um, whatever they're doing isn't working for them. Um, so just continuing to kind of hold space and be present for them, I think is a, a really important thing um, as a funeral director. And it's something that I, I love about the folks that I work with, that that's their same mindset. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is beautiful. So why do you think that this profession was calling to you? What was it? Um, 
I don't, you know what? I, I tease a lot with folks that I was a little bit like Jonah in the belly of the whale. I didn't really, um, you know, going through high school, we, we lost a, a family member who was like an uncle to me and a, a homicide arson. Um, my high school sweetheart died of cancer. There was always, um, I don't, I don't want to make it, it sounds like a terrible black cloud following me, but death was around me. And we didn't always have the vocabulary or the, the space to talk about it. Um, and initially when I went to college, I thought I was going to go into forensic pathology. Um, Patricia Cornwell was a big thing there. Um, and I got kind of diverted into helping families and helping children, which I loved. Um, but it still didn't quite feel right. Um, and I, I think it's interesting that the, the day that I found out about my diagnosis was the same day I was expecting to hear back on a job that would put me back into the criminal justice field. Mm -hmm. um, and I really feel like it was God sticking his finger on me and saying, you're not listening. There's a different path for you. Um, and so, um, you know, that time spent healing with from my sarcoma, that time spent uh, processing my grief, that time spent raising my son who was about to start kindergarten. Um, all of that kind of put me in the mind of there's something bigger than me that I could be a part of um, that would address some of those places that were missing for me when I had to experience loss. Um, and, and so that was a big push. Um, you know, how do we, how do we take the sadness and how do we, the things that we were missing and how do we become that resource for others? Um, and I know that's something you can relate to those things that you were lacking when you were, you were in grief. How do, how do we manage to bring that to other people, um, and turn that around? So, um, so yeah, I just, I feel like I just wasn't listening and I was really hard-headed for a long time and fought this off. And um, sometimes, <laughs> yeah. sometimes it's still, I still surprise myself. Literally yesterday I was thinking about it and I was thinking about how many miles, uh, you know, two years of school, I just came up on uh, five years of passing my national board. So you've got these national boards, you've got a state board, you've got 3000 hours of apprenticeship. It's not an easy task to undertake to get this license. Um, and so sometimes I remember that I did all that and I kind of, it surprises me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow, I did. Um, but it didn't seem strenuous because it seemed like it was what I was supposed to do. It's amazing. That's what I, I, I tell people when I do a lot of speaking is the difference between a good idea and a calling is that the calling never stops, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and sometimes God has to use ways, uh, honestly, I think ways of communicating with you that get a little louder and a little louder mm -hmm. and a little louder. And so I say now I want to be in the zone where I can hear the whisper. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, I want to hear the whisper. The loudness is like, okay, I don't want like hitting me up against the face all the time. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Beat me over the head. Will yeah. you listen to and then, me? And then it's such, it's such a crazy thing too, because, <laughs> because, you know, I've settled into what it is I think is my purpose. And unfortunately, you know, my, my marriage suffered and, and I've had the end of a marriage, but I don't feel like I've lost anything. I, it's such a weird, like to be in the position that I'm in now and to do what I do now, it brings so much back to me that I feel like this has got to be what it is I'm supposed to do. This has got to be what finding your calling feels like um, because it, it never feels like work. <laughs> um, it never, it just, it's, it's so, um, 
I don't, you and I've talked about be, being able to be kind of in that sacred space. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like a lot of what we do as funeral directors, um, you know, however the media portrays us or you hear it from your friends or whatever, there's a really sacred thing that we get to do. There's a sacred type of magic that we get to do where we get to give families more time with their loved one. Um, we give them space to remember the stories and talk about their loved one and to receive the stories of their loved one. Um, you know, just just to be able to do that. I mean, I can't, it sounds like a very weird thing to be happy about, but it it, it is. It's it's nice to be able to be that resource that that I didn't have. And it's nice to find like spirits and encourage them to speak up and speak out as well. Um, because we, I, I just, I feel like there's so many people hurting, especially right now in, in what, you know, they're calling this pandemic of grief that's following COVID. I just really feel like until we get really honest about talking about our grief and our grief mm-hmm. journeys, we're, we're hurt, we're still hurting as a society. Um, so we've got to figure out how do we normalize those discussions and create those safe spaces. So, so that's gonna, part of what I do. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna switch the conversation a little bit to um, the new trend now in um, in the in the death of people is that um, because that we try to sanitize it and get it done and over with and don all the I's and cross all the T's and get back to life. Mm-hmm. That is what we're like this instant society now, right? Um, I I read something a while ago about the Irish wake and there is such a beauty to the Irish wake and the Mm -hmm. children are crawling on the floor and the people are holding sacred space for what, 24 hours round the clock. There are family and friends and no one is shielded and no one is weirded out and the stories are shared. And it just brings me to tears that that is so beautiful. And now we just wanna whitewash it. And we don't wanna spend that time with it. And um, how can we get back to that. Mm-hmm. I think that something that I think is really fascinating, um, just, you know, when you look at the, the history of, of death care and how it was first, you know, families took care of their own. And then you're right, we do this kind of industrialization thing where we kind of uh, third party it out. Um, and then you, you see a lot of families who just want to do direct cremation. They just want to show up, take the person home. And it's like, it never happened. And that uh, is is heartbreaking on so many levels. I think what's fascinating now about death care is we're starting to see um, kind of the pendulum swing back. So about 60 to 70% of mortuary school students right now are women. And I say that not to disparage men in this field, do not get me wrong, but I do feel as if we are moving into more that idea of death care and caring for families and uh, you know planning events that don't look like your average funerals um, and providing that aftercare and a little bit of social work in there too. Um, so I don't think it's by accident that women are coming more into this profession. Um, you know, we're still fighting a lot against, you know, kind of that traditional, like what people think a hearse driver should look like or who should be handling the casket or, you know, very, um, you know, formulaic things. Um, But we have a lot of families who come to us and a lot of times their first question is, am I allowed to, or can we? Um, Because they want something different for their loved one than they know of, Mm -hmm. you know, can you play Pharrell Williams happy at the end of your service? Absolutely, if that was your person and that's how you wanna celebrate them, absolutely. So I think there's a real um, 
you know, while I, I can't say that we're going to get back to the whole keening moment <laughs> momentum anymore, there is a real push for people to make their services personalized. And we're seeing a lot more families who want to be part of uh, the preparation of their loved one, you know, whether that's helping to dress them, helping to put their makeup on. Um, and that's something that we encourage because I think that's a very important part of, um, you know, processing your grief too, is taking care th that last time you take care of someone. Um, I know for me, um, it, the first time I was back in a prep room and I'm washing someone's hair, you know, it hits you that the first person to do that with intention was his mother. Mm -hmm. And I get to be the last person to do that with intention. Um, and so that, that type of care and that type of understanding that this is still someone's loved one and, and that care, they deserve that care. And like, no matter what happens on the other side of it, um, to be able to provide that is pretty, um, awesome. It's a, it's a, a, a it's just such a, um, uh, it's a sacred. <laughs> really, yeah, I know. And, I, and people think I'm crazy when I say sacred magic. And I'm like, I wish that I wish that the way that I understand being a funeral director um, was the way that all funeral directors yeah. worked. I, and then that's not to say like I'm the best. It's just um, I have to, you know, give a shout out to Thomas Lynch, who does amazing work where he is and his poetry and books have inspired me. I just think understanding that this is a, a very sacred undertaking, that you're being entrusted with something so big. Um, and, you know, you really have to want to get it right for your families. And you, you really, you could do a lot of damage if you're not in that headspace, I think. Um, and again, that's based on my own experience of having a funeral director who just was all about the business and, and didn't care about my person, you know? Yeah, yeah. So well, that's beautiful. So let's, let's just uh, round this out again um, to the graduating grief theme. And um, I would just love to know what you would tell someone who's going through that, that pain right now about moving through the process and stepping back into living again? I think for me, a big part of that was being willing, um, being willing to talk about my person. Um, and when my father died, I remember being very um, precious about his memory. Like nobody else could have him. He was my dad. I didn't want to hear any stories. I didn't want to know anything. Like I felt very proprietary. Like this is my person. You can't tell me. Um, and I, I realize now that I did myself a great disservice in shutting myself off that way. Um, when my mother passed, being far more open to hearing stories about her, um, to finding out what type of, you know, cousin she was when she was on the Jersey Shore, or, you know, like hearing these stories about her, rounding her out as a person. Um, and, and so that helps to inform how I know she'd want me to go forward. Um, and so I think that it's, it's so important, um, you know, if it's not a, not a funeral ritual, you need your people, you need to hear the stories of your loved one, you need to be able to have people who will let you tell the stories of your loved one. Um, for me, a big thing that I am a, a proponent of, um, and it, are these grief rituals that we do. Um, so for example, April 4th, and it was Easter for everybody, but it was also uh, would have been my father's birthday. Um, and so every, every father's birthday, I have to have strawberry cheesecake. It's a rule. Um, my mother's uh, birthday, we always have cannoli because that was the last birthday dessert she had with us. Um, and then on their dates of passing, I have a ritual. So for my father, December 11th, that's when we put the Christmas tree up. Um, and on uh, April 15th, my mom's date of passing, we plant petunias. 
That's just, that's what we were doing the day that she was gone. That's what we keep doing. And this idea that kind of um, life goes on um, as long as you're living it. And that's the important part is that um, how do you, how do you continue to live it? And for me, that's how, um, if my father was here on his birthday, we'd go out for strawberry cheesecake. So I'm just going to keep doing that because that's, that's what he would have done. Um, and then that allows me to continue it. I miss him and I miss the memories we can make and him getting to know my kid. But at the same time, he never feels very far away, which is kind of a strange thing to, to think about. But I think that that's really important um, that, that grief doesn't always have to um, hurt and be sad. Sometimes in your grief, you can find celebration and you can find um, a space to commune with the spirit of that person. So I think that that's a making space for that for ourselves is really important. Thank you for listening to the Graduating Grief Podcast. For more information on the Graduating Grief community, workshops, and retreats, go to www.sherrydunlevy.com. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, and share.